0: Hello, my name is Patricia and you are listening to the Poetry P podcast. You are most welcome. Now, today I'm going to continue the presentation I started last time with the podcast about haikai poetry. You might like to go and have a listen to that first, if you haven't. This time I'm looking at the technique of illusion and I'm aspiring to be a well-read, highly literate poet just as our ancestors in poetry were. But before I get started with some great poetry from the medieval period right through to contemporary work, let's have a think about what's going on at Poetry P at the moment. Now if you are listening in real time in early December 2023, this week with a fair wind behind us, the latest journal 223 will wing its way over to Richard Tice who Bless him, will be proofreading and helping me to get it ready for you. Honestly, there's so much in it this time. I read it and I'm amazed at the work we do together. I'll also be recording the podcast with Zoka submissions, ready for you to listen to later in the month. My thanks to the judges who've made themselves available, which reminds me, I'm going to be sending out my usual begging mailing to ask for volunteers for next year in the not too distant future. Please sign up. Now, one reason to get yourself on the mailing list, if you're not already, is the ability to be on the podcast. But I'm also going to be sending out the topics for next year so you can get a head start on the competition. There will, of course, be a, a web page, too, but poets on the mailing list will get first glance. And there are going to be some changes to the way I do things next year. Sorry to repeat myself, but there'll be a mailing going out before the end of December, I hope, to tell you all about it. Poets who've been selected for a Touchstone nomination from Poetry P will also be finding out soon. Do keep an eye on your mail. I will, of course, be recording a podcast to read them to you as well. So, as you can see, even though December has no open submissions, no reading period, Life is very busy at Poetry P, and if you can afford a few cents for the podcast to continue its work, I'd be much obliged. Thank you. So on with today's podcast, you're going to need it to refer to for the first of next year's topics. Last time on the podcast, I discussed haikai poetry. It's important to understand the idea of haikai, because it has a direct bearing on the English language, Japanese inspired poetry we write today. As I said before, if you haven't listened yet, do go back and have a listen or watch the workshop on YouTube. When we're writing our short forms, whether it's haikai, senryu, tanka, haiga or haibun, what we are surely trying to achieve is haikai poetry, which as you should now know is unorthodox. Poetry. How can we achieve this unorthodoxy? I wonder, is that even a word? But you know what I mean. Well, we can combine the use of some or all of these humour or lightness of touch, contemporary language, contemporary pop culture or references, a no holds barred range of topics, an unusual perspective, and a search for newness or something unique. Today, I want to talk to you about Honkadori, to define it and give you some examples, which will take us from the medieval period in Japan right through to the contemporary era in the English-speaking haiku world. As I've said before, in order to evolve a poetry genre, it's important to understand where it comes from and how it's developed to this point. So what is Onkadori? It's an elusive variation. It alludes to another poem, but as it says on the tin, it changes it, it varies it. Initially in Waka, Renga and Haikai, this would involve appropriation of a line or lines from a foundation poem to create the illusion. That's not to suggest that poets plagiarise the work of others, no. The point would be to take that reference from the foundation poem and use the reference creatively to write something fresh. And as we're discussing Japanese-inspired short form poetry, then honkadori in the medieval period would be the referencing of a classical Chinese or Japanese piece of work. A piece of poetry, that is. For my first example, I'm going to go back to the 800s, to the Isles of Issa. The exact date of its conception isn't clear, but it comes most likely from the mid to late 800s, which, although medieval in Europe, was quite possibly pre-medieval in Japan. If you've never read it, I'd probably describe it as a book of poetry and narrative, the poetry being short, wacker rather than haiku, so I'm loath to call it haibun. According to Donald Keane, who wrote the foreword, many of the poems are attributed to Narahiri, but some were added by other poets. This is from episode three, A Gift of Seaweed. If your love is true, let us lie together. Though this hut is poor, we can spread out our sleeves to make a bed. If your love is true, let us lie together. Though this hut is poor, we can spread out our sleeves to make a bed. Peter Macmillan has translated the first line as, if your love is true, but of course there are other translations such as, if there is such a thing as love, or if we love each other. But you get the drift. And if this translation is a true representation of what the poet meant to write, and I don't mean to cast any aspersions here, but translating is rather difficult, then this poem, rather than appropriate a line or lines, has taken a theme which is similar in theme to several poems in the manual Shu that speak not not just of love, but also feature a hut covered in reeds. Such as this one. What good is a house strewn with pearls to me? Let it be a hut covered in weeds, if I can be there with my love. What good is a house strewn with pearls to me? Let it be a hut covered in weeds, if I can be there with my love. We don't know actually who wrote this one. The Man'yoshu, which means an anthology of a thousand leaves, is thought to be the oldest collection of Japanese waka compiled after 759 AD, but the poetry contained within it, within it probably comes from the 600s onwards. So we can assume that the first poem, A Gift of Seaweed, alludes to the poetry written within the Man'yoshu. Sometime later, around 1170 AD, Minamoto Yorimasa composed this Waka poem, borrowing a couple of words from an earlier poem. In the capital, the leaves were still green when I saw them, for bright autumn leaves now scatter at Shirakawa Barrier. In the capital, the leaves were still green when I saw them, for bright autumn leaves now scatter at Shirakawa Barrier. And this alludes to a poem by priest Noin, composed roughly a century before. Though I left the capital together with the spring mists, autumn winds are blowing at Shirakawa Barrier. Though I left the capital together with the spring mists, autumn winds are blowing at Shirakawa Barrier. So, as you see, both poems speak of the Shirakawa Barrier both ending, of course, with at Shirokawa Barrier. If you're wondering what it is, it's a fortress which is first mentioned in historical records in 835 AD, but which certainly by the time of Yorimasa's poem would have been a ruin. The journey they're speaking of is almost certainly one from Kyoto, which was the country's capital at the time. And according to Google Maps, so useful, isn't it? would currently be around 580 kilometres. But of course, in the 11th and 12th centuries, that distance may well well have been more because of the state of the roads. And traveller poets and monks may well have taken from spring or summer through to autumn to do the journey on foot or by horseback. As, As we know from our sources, they often stopped along the way. Can you discern a difference in tone developed through the diction of the poems? Yorimasa's poem is more upbeat, isn't it? He elevates the mood of the poem by talking of the leaves still being green, suggesting to me that the season was later than Noen's poem. Yorimasa's leaves of autumn are bright, an altogether more cheerful set of images than Noen's, in which he speaks of the spring mists, a dump and fairly dismal picture and of autumn winds blowing. And I don't know about you, but I can certainly feel the chill. In this example by Fujiwara no Ietaka, who lived in the 12th and early set 13th centuries, Ietaka has taken three lines from an earlier anonymous poet, with a slight variation. But quite possibly this is something that we would frown upon today. Let's hear them. At Takasago, the days go by without cries from deer on the slopes. Days that pile up with white snow, enveloping the pines. At Takasago, the days go by without cries from deer on the slopes. Days that pile up with white snow, enveloping the pines. And then a poem which was written 200 years earlier. Again and again, the winds of autumn blow at Takasago, where no day goes by without cries from deer on the slopes. Again and again, the winds of autumn blow at Takasago, where no day goes by without cries from deer on the slopes. Did you catch the variation? In one, the deer cry every day. In the other, Days go by without their cries. In one it's winter, in the other autumn. How does that season affect your emotional reaction to the poems? Let me know. Renga strive to use elusive variation in the same way as Waka, not to copy a poem, but to change it. As in this example of Sabuku's work, From the 1500s which alludes to the second poem written by an anonymous poet taken from the kokinshu another imperial anthology this time completed around 920 a.d as i gaze out into unending night it pierces to the core who says a mountain village is better than the cruel world As I gaze out into unending night, it pierces to the core. Who says a mountain village is better than the cruel world? And then the earlier poem. Things are forlorn in a mountain village, surely that is so. But life there is easier than back in the cruel world. Things are forlorn in a mountain village. Surely that is so. But life there is easier than back in the cruel world. You can see the reference, the mountain village and the cruel world. Sabuku in the uh, later poem is questioning the anonymous poet's rather optimistic assessment of the mountain village. Who says a mountain village is better than the cruel world. As I mentioned in my previous podcast, elusive variation is more difficult in hoku and haiku than it is in waka. It's obvious, really. You have far fewer words with which to create the illusion to another piece of work, but it is possible. Two of the most popular ways of allusion to other poems are the repetition of themes, which make the illusion clear. clear or to actually borrow words and phrases from another poem. Basho, well-educated in poetry classics, was known to have his favourite poets, Libo and Tufu. And Professor Fumiko Pujikara suggests an illusionary link between this poem of Tufu and this hoku by Basho. Let me read them to you. See if you can see it. Though the nation is shattered, its hills and streams remain. It is spring again in the cities. Grasses and trees are luxuriant, overwhelmed by changes of time. Flowers seem to shed tears, lamenting my separation from family. Birds seem to be moved. Though the nation is shattered, its hills and streams remained. It is spring in the cities. Grasses and trees are luxuriant, overwhelmed by changes of time. Flowers seem to shed tears. Lamenting my separation, birds seem to be moved. And that was tofu, spring, the long view. Departing spring, birds crying, tears in the eyes of fish. Departing spring, birds crying, tears in the eyes of fish. And that's by our friend Basho. The situation of both poets when writing their poems is very different. Obviously, there's the time difference, but Tufu is writing at a time of civil war. Whereas Basho is writing as he's about to set off on his journey to the north. Yet the theme is similar sadness. And not just sadness, but the idea that when the poet is sad, then the universe is sad. Some might say that Basho is sad to be leaving his friends to set off on his journey, but is that really what he's expressing? More likely, he's sad at the idea of spring departing. After all, That's clearly what he's saying. Tufu is also suggesting that when he's sad, nature is sad. But in his case, it's clearly because of the deplorable state his country is in, and of course, that he's separated from his family. And while we're talking about Basho, remember Basho's old pond? How can we forget? Here's a version translated by R. H. Blythe. The old pond a frog jumps in, the sound of water. The old pond a frog jumps in, the sound of water. Now let me give you a Wacker allusion to Basho's pond. What did he mean talking about that old pond? I don't know but even now you can hear the sound of water. What did he mean talking about that old pond? I don't know. But even now you can hear the sound of water. And that was by Kawaga Kagike. Now you can see that this waka of the late Edo period is more subtle than the previous one by Iyataka. It doesn't take a chunk of Basha's poem, merely one single line, but he's used it creatively to connect with Basha's poem, hasn't he? He's taken the idea and created a new poem in a witty, light-hearted way. And we can be in no doubt as to the illusion. Hoku and haiku, as I said, are far too short to take a multiple of lines from the poetry of others. And to do that could even be regarded as plagiarism. However, it can be done with fragments of other poems. And here we have a very recent poem from 2023 by Vandana Parashar. Fresh rain, the old pond renewed. Fresh rain, the old pond renewed. Thinking about it, I feel that this is probably set in the spring because it speaks of fresh rain, so potentially, knowing where Vandana is located, it's the start of a monsoon season, May-June time. She's quite explicit in her allusion. One whole line is borrowed, the old pond. But she gives it a fresh feel by creating the idea of the sound subtly by writing of rain. We all know the sound of rain. She doesn't need to highlight it for us. And I wondered, is she being a little cheeky with her final line, renewed? Is she implying a renewal of Bashu's poem? As well as a renewal of the old pond, which in purely observational terms was probably somewhat depleted before the rain. In our next one, Einbond constructs a poem, which again gives a fresh feel to Basho's poem whilst clearly alluding to it. Frog pond. A leaf falls in without a sound. Frog pond. A leaf falls in without a sound. He's changed constituent parts. It's not set in spring, as Basho's was, but in autumn. Leaves are falling in the pond, not a frog jumping in. But by using a couple of words, frog and sound, Basho's Pond immediately comes to mind, at least for me. What about you? And I've used the same technique of variation to create my homage to Basho, based on a family legend. And if you'd like to know the full story, you'll have to get invited to my daughter's wedding, because I'm sure it's going to be told there. She does so enjoy hearing it. The Frog Pond My Daughter Falls In Sound of hysteria. The frog pond my daughter falls in. Sound of hysteria. And one final old pond example. One haiku master alluding to another. Old pond. Let me go first. Jumping frog. Old pond. Let me go first. Jumping frog. And that, of course, is Isa. And staying with him, David Lanoui gives us a, this translation of one of his more famous poems. Little snail, inch by inch, climb Mount Fuji. Little snail, inch by inch, climb Mount Fuji. Now, this poem has been alluded to a number of times, but I thought I'd bring you a couple of contemporary examples. The first is from Jessica Tremblay. Quickly, quickly, an ant climbs a postcard of Mount Fuji. Quickly, quickly, an ant climbs a postcard of Mount Fuji. And this one from Peter Chuhov. And my apologies, Peter, if you're listening, and I've pronounced that name terribly wrong. So far away from Mount Fuji, a dead snail. So far away from Mount Fuji, a dead snail. Again, both poets have clearly alluded to the first poem, the foundation poem, but they've changed their poems to make something new and unique. Now, at a recent poetry reading, I was delighted to hear Tom Sacramona read one of his poems, as yet unpublished, and thank you, Tom, for letting me use it. Winter fly, asked about life after death, rubs his hands together. Winter fly, asked about life after death, rubs his hands together. Now, when I was sitting there listening to it, I was immediately put in mind of Kerouac's poem. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. Obviously, this poem has the words winter fly, as Kerouac's has, and it has a dead fly, as Kerouac's has. And Kerouac was, of course, known to be someone interested in religion. He was brought up Catholic. And really, if you read his work, he can't escape his Catholic upbringing. Yet he was fascinated by Buddhism. But I was talking this over with Joshua Gage, who brought my attention to another poem and wondered, could it also be alluding to that? Don't swat the fly, rubbing hands, rubbing feet. Don't swat the fly, rubbing hands, rubbing feet. And that's Isa, again translated by David Lanoui. Now, if we're both right, that takes us back to the approach that Basho took. Could this be a combination of theme, death and the fly, as well as a clear borrowing of a few words to point us in the right direction. i be interested to know what you think, and maybe you even see another poem. Again, let me know. So I've defined honkadori as being an elusive variation of an older poem, but could we not also say that the lyrics of songs are often poems? Stephen Carter says of traditional Japanese songs, that they often showed connections to prevailing poetic conventions. So we could also make a case for the songs of Western culture. And here's an example of contemporary haiku alluding to a country and Western song. Ernest Tub cover, not enough whiskey to ask her to waltz. Ernest Tub cover, not enough whiskey to ask her to waltz. And this alludes to the lyrics of a song called Waltz Across Texas, which speaks poetically of love. Here's a snippet of the lyrics. Like a storybook ending, I'm lost in your charms, and I could waltz across Texas with you. Like a storybook ending, I'm lost in your charms, and I could waltz across Texas with you. Gage has given us clues to the illusion, Ernest Tubb cover and waltz, which should bring us directly to the song, but he's used Honkadori a variation in his illusion. Our protagonist is clearly smitten, but has not the courage to waltz across Texas with the unknown person of his dreams. Again, like Sacramona, we see a direct use of words as clues, but also an allusion to a theme that of love. To end the presentation today and our exploration of Honkadori, one last example from two contemporary poets. Waiting room, the ex-wife looks past me. Waiting room, the ex-wife looks past me. And that's from Roberta Beery. And this from Rowan Beckett as yet unpublished. Garbage day, a long stare at his ex-wife. Garbage day, a long stare at his ex-wife. My thanks to Rowan for let me, letting me use that as it's unpublished. Now the illusion is clear because both poems are referring to the ex-wife. And I don't know if you can feel it, but both poems to me express a certain amount of malice but the perspective of the poems are different, aren't they? One more passive, one more aggressive. In conclusion then, we now have an understanding of honkadori, an elusive variation, and we can see how as poets, we can allude to poetry and song lyrics if we regard them as poetic literature. Next time, I'm going to be talking about honsetsu Mitaki and how we're going to use all that we've learned in these last few weeks to write magnificent poems in January 2024. My thanks to the contemporary poets who generously allowed me to use their work, sometimes even unpublished, I'm truly honored. Tom Sacramona, Rowan Beckett, Joshua Gage, and Vandana Parashar. And if you don't think Waltz Across Texas is literature, take it up with Josh. I'm staying out of this one. So until next time, keep writing. The short essay and the links to the reference materials will be in the show notes. If you think I've left something out, do please let me know. Ciao!